0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, folks, Mike's done it to me again. For those of you who are longtime members of Holy Communion, you know that I frequently complain that I'm the one who gets to preach when Mike's out of town, when there is some obscure church festival or a text that really defies all human understanding. Well, today is the rector's trifecta because we get all three. Mike and Ellis are vacationing with their family over the holiday weekend in New Mexico. We're celebrating perhaps the most obscure of all the church's holidays, Christ the King. And in the midst of our Thanksgiving, revelry and joy, We deal with a gospel spoken only hours before Jesus was crucified. Mike and I have been going back and forth over the past several weeks. You see, he tends to think that since this religious holiday, this celebration was only brought to life by Pius XI in the early part of the 20th century, that it somehow is a hallmark festival. Me, on the other hand, I rather think that the notion of celebrating Christ as King, Christ in the fullness of majesty on this last day of the church year makes a lot of sense. But in order to get there, I'm going to ask you to travel with me a little bit. Take a look back. Almost a year ago, we began the church year with Advent. The hopeful anticipation of the Messiah entering into human experience And then continued the celebration of his birth through Christmas and Epiphany. The short gray days of winter and Lent gradually revealed Jesus to us and the world as not only the Son of Man, but the very Son of God. However, just as our voices joined the chorus of those who welcomed Jesus triumphantly into Jerusalem, we too participated in the passion of the holiest of weeks, the painful desolation and abandonment of Jesus on the cross. Then, just three days later, we awoke to the stunning good news of Christ no longer dead, but Christ risen, Christ alive, Christ present in the world. And for the next 50 days we rejoiced in the dawn of the resurrection and the culmination of God's decisive act of redemption on behalf of all creation, concluding with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Subsequent time of Pentecost, which we often refer to as ordinary time, which has marked our liturgical journey for the past several months, has by explicit intent focused our attention on the meaning of Christ for the community of the faithful, the church, but also for the larger society in which we live and work. Enriched by God's presence, we've been challenged to explore a world fractured and in disarray. Empowered by God's spirit, we've been summoned to a ministry of unequivocal love, unambiguous embrace, and unbounded forgiveness. And transformed by God's grace, we've been called to be the church, the body of Christ, living out the new life inaugurated by the Christ. So as we conclude this extended time of reflection on the Christian life and service this morning, as well as the church year itself, we return to the very source of our joy, Christ the King of Kings, Christ the Lord of Lords. But with festive celebration in the air, why pray tell, are we then confronted this day by the painful repetition of a pivotal event in Jesus' agonizing journey to the cross. How does his appearance before an indifferent, if not hostile, judge give us any sense of hope, let alone joy? And where in the midst of ridicule and disdain do we catch a glimpse of majesty, triumph, and the supremacy of God's reign? Although each of the four evangelists records the details of Jesus' trial before Pilate, John is distinctive both in genre and perspective. His adaptation of the appearance before Pilate is cast as a seven-act drama, preceded by a brief introduction and characterized by Pilate's recurring physical transition from intimate conversations with Jesus within his headquarters, the Praetorium, to more general queries posed to the crowd gathered outside. The movement between different locations and the nature of the conversation in each of them is especially instructive for us this morning. Most obvious is the cruel irony of Jesus' accusers who, while determined to invoke the imperial force of Rome to rid themselves of this meddlesome prophet, this itinerant preacher, refused to enter into the court of jurisdiction on the pretext that they would not want to do anything to defile themselves before the Passover. Thus, as citizens of a defeated and occupied nation, and therefore precluded from exercising the very justice that they were demanding, they turned to Pilate, a civil authority, but were themselves unwilling to participate in its deliberations or entertain an interpretation of God's revelation that was different from theirs. Simply stated, they washed their hands in the guise of religion and false piety. Equally important, however, is Pilate's cynical ambivalence. As the governor of a conquered and subservient state, his authority was unassailable. He could send troops into battle, commandeer land, and impose taxes. Nevertheless, despite his recognition of the potential challenge to his rule by the claims of this Jesus of Nazareth, Pilate appears to waffle, to vacillate. At times, he's emboldened by the shouts of the crowd who demand Jesus' execution. And at others, he seems sympathetic to a wrongfully accused victim. In the final act of this judicial play, Pilate emerges as nothing more than a crass politician, mocking the timidity of his Jewish subjects sneering at their syncophatic behavior and laughing at a religion that was without power. Although challenged, it seems unlikely that Pilate felt particularly threatened by this raucous crowd. Mm. But Jesus' presence, Jesus' presence was a different matter. While structured as a legal proceeding, specifically the arraignment of charges, Jesus' appearance before Pilate had little to do with establishing the facts of his pending case or the merits of the charges which had been brought against him. Rather, what emerges in John's narrative is a far broader, far deeper, and far more profound conversation that reaches into the very soul of the human experience and the truth of a God who reigns supreme. Not a civil authority, who only pretends. Following a brief exchange with Jesus' accusers outside the praetorium, Pilate returns to his headquarters and confronts Jesus for the first time. Are you the king of the Jews? He asks. Seizing the moment, Jesus responds with a question of his own, emasculating Pilate and exposing him as little more than a spineless bureaucrat incapable of judicial discernment, let alone political leadership. Hmm. Pilate, do you ask that question on your own? Or did somebody else put you up to it? Oblivious to Jesus' sarcasm and clearly disdainful of his subject, Pilate declares, I'm not a Jew, am I? Thus, in an instant, the prosecutorial dynamic of the courtroom has been reversed, and the judge has inadvertently ceded control of the proceedings. No longer the accused... Jesus has become the interrogator and pilot the unwitting foil for what is both his opening argument and summation. My kingdom is not of this world, Jesus continues. If my kingdom were from this world, my followers would be fighting to keep me from being handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not from here. Rather than attempting to regain command of the conversation, poor Pilate haplessly falls further into Jesus' rhetorical trap. So you you are a king. And again, Jesus appropriates the question, redirects it, and strips Pilate of even fleeting momentum. You say that I'm a king. For this I was born, and for this I came into the world. The table turning events of this courtroom drama are now almost complete. Pointedly, masterfully, Jesus has forced Pilate to respond to his own question, and in doing so, has created the platform for Jesus to reveal the essence of his identity and his mission to testify to the truth. John's gospel, verses before, began with the elusive and metaphorical assertion that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and without him. Not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Throughout this narrative, John develops this exact theme as he gradually brings the word, Jesus, into focus. First labeling him as Messiah, then as Lord, and today, reaching its apex as King. This is indeed the truth of God made manifest in Jesus. Unlike the temporal and ultimately impotent rule of earthly monarchs and their minions, the truth of Jesus' kingship is grounded in neither title nor function, but in its origin and very being, the very essence of God. The truth is, in fact, God. God. God supreme, God omnipotent, God unchallenged. However, despite the forceful testimony of Jesus, this judicial proceeding has not yet concluded. A verdict must be rendered. And again, the roles are reversed. It is not Pilate, but Jesus who pronounces judgment over his accusers, over Pilate, and over the entire world. Everyone who belongs to the truth listens to my voice. Not Pilate's, my voice. In this final declaratory judgment, Jesus makes clear that it is not he who is on trial, but all who would deny what God has already made known, what has already been captured generations before by the psalmist who proclaimed, The Lord is king, he is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed, he is girded with strength. He has established the world, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old, you are from everlasting. Yet Jesus' indictment of temporal power is also an invitation to us, to new life, to the unbounded grace of the reign of God. It is, as John of Patmos exhorted us in this morning's lesson from Revelation, an invitation to join Jesus, the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood and made us to be a kingdom, priest serving God, the Father. And it's an invitation to reside for all eternity with the God who is Alpha and Omega, who is and was and is to come, truly the Almighty. Thus, this morning as we conclude the liturgical year, not immersed in the mockery of a fabricated trial, the faithlessness of a judge and jury, or even the certain execution which awaits Jesus, but with his unbridled declaration of the one God who reigns in life and death, in this world and the next, now and for all time. Together then, dear friends, let us rejoice, let us exult in Christ the King, and to his Father and ours be glory and dominion forever and ever.